Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. David Scott's with us as always. Pleasure to be back as always, Paul. And look, regular listeners of the show will know one of my small handful of hobby horses, uh, or you might call them high horses, is the lack of attention paid to bonds and fixed income markets in Australia, not just because they're vastly bigger than the stock market, but also because they tell you a lot about how the world's biggest investors um, are thinking about the world. And also when there's trouble, it can more often than not start in the debt markets. So it's great that we've got on the show as our guest this week, Martin Wetton, rate strategist today in Z Bank. Uh, Martin, welcome to the show. Great Thanks to so much you. for having me. It's great to be here. Um, it has been a pretty big year on uh, on bond markets, hasn't it? It really has. And I mean, I, I guess it all started uh, almost a year ago when uh, we got to that point of uh, almost despair for the world when 43% of world sovereign bonds were yielding less than uh, 0%. And it felt at that point for many people as though the world was coming to an end and there was, it was a real dire situation. That was the low, and we've moved a long way since then. But this year's been uh, quite an up-and-down year, a lot of triumphs and a lot of hopes being dashed, particularly uh, in, in the US. I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to going through it all. We've got a pretty packed agenda um, led by the RBA this week where there's a, a short excerpt in the minutes from the last monetary policy meeting. Um, that was the, the minutes were published on Tuesday, and they led to some pretty dramatic market moves. We're going to look at that. We're going to walk through the current picture for the Australian economy. And uh, with Martin here, we're going to look uh, in a bit more detail at the at the bond market. Um, so um, we'll talk about the RBA in a second, um, but I just want to quickly take a step back uh, for some important context. The Australian economy is starting to look like it may be building some like, proper momentum. Um, there's been some reasonably good data, and uh, it's we're recording on Thursday, and we got the jobs data this morning, yep. and yet again another good print. Um, Dave, um, you, you've been talking about how you know there's um, some signs of life, green shoots. There are some uh, green shoots, and it's a most welcome sign after uh, so many years of pessimism and uh, you know, talking down this round economy. It's actually uh, some good uh, good signs starting to come through. Uh, of course, we saw. A lot of it started kicked off. Uh, you know, we saw the PMI uh, uh, data that came out from Australia at the start of the year. We started to show some improvement. Then the uh, the NAB business survey, and then we've just seen a flow-on effect through uh, hiring. Just started to go and pick up. We saw today another fourteen thousand increase, uh, sixty-two thousand full-time jobs created. Uh, it's brought the unemployment down, uh, unemployment rate down to around about five point six percent. Still elevated, but uh, but not as high as what it was in the past. Um, also seen back-to-back uh, strong gains in retail sales. And just today as well, we saw the, uh, the Comsec uh, business spending indicator for, uh, for June, uh, revealing another hefty increase in, uh, in economy-wide spending. So um, all the signs are there that, uh, that things are starting to go and pick up, but uh, no, still very much in its infancy. Yeah, um, and Martin, of course, uh, the inflation outlook, um, all, all uh, important here too. 
Um, you guys do um, obviously uh, on the fixed income markets, you know, all over the inflation picture. Um, but uh, you also publish some very good research, uh, I think, on on uh, on how um, that's all taking shape. What do you see uh, now when you're looking at the domestic picture here? So for inflation, well, I guess you, I would broadly agree with David. There, there have definitely been some good signs this year. They have been tempered though by probably the inflation outlook being still soft. It, it's stabilised and we expect next week for it to stabilise, but stabilising at a very low number and also uh, within that, the wages part. And it, it's, the, it's the thing that worries us the most. Wages remain benign, uh, to put it mildly, and therefore the outlook for the consumer is one of where we, we're just a little bit cautious. We do think that, say, rates might go up because the market takes them there. What that does is tighten financial conditions. You have regulatory changes in banking that put up the cost of funds, and each little bit, they might be five, ten basis points here or there, but added up, uh, they've been reasonably significant. And so that eats into the people with mortgages uh, in, in terms of what they can actually spend. So we do see that, that the consumer is pretty well tested here. Mm. Um, they've survived and the fact that we're doing okay is 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 definitely great news. I think Treasurer Morrison's talked the economy up. That's his job as well. But the Prime Minister's been on the wires today doing the same thing. So, yes, there is momentum. It's perhaps not as much as the markets want to price, mm. but – the markets also have this um, uh, view towards pessimism because they've had 10 years of it and they seem to like that. Absolutely. So we've got a we've got a, quite a mix going on in bond markets to your initial point. Yeah. Um, I, and I think just um, on that point, we've published um, uh, some uh, reports based on research which talking about, you know, even sort of 10, 25 basis points added on to um, certain categories of mortgages uh, sucks billions of dollars yes. uh, in consumer spending um, out of the economy. Uh, you know, they, you might see a headline that says, um, you know, 10% or 10, uh, 10 basis points has been added to it. wouldn't be 10%. That would be, <laughs> um, That'd be but, depression, depression would, area. <laughs> and 10 basis points being added on to the price of um, uh, certain lending. Um, certain certain categories of loans, but uh, uh, that actually does trans translate into pretty significant um, uh, impact on household budgets, um, and as well as activity. I mean, we did see a slowdown in some of that building activity, and we do think that housing will slow as a result of mm. some of these, the the pace of it. But I think also importantly, we've had this enormous rise in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane house price corridor, the east coast where most people do live. Let's be honest, uh, and that has. Um, not really translated as a wealth effect into spending that's, say, commensurate with the price rises we've seen. It has obviously helped, mm. but maybe not to the same extent. Let's look at the RBA. Uh, so a big day on Tuesday. Yes. Uh, the big question was, um, I suppose, for the RBA this month. Now, and this is where it gets interesting. The statement uh, the first Tuesday of the month uh, was dead neutral, um, there were questions about whether the RBA would follow other central banks around the world uh, in, you know, being a bit more bullish um, on the economy, maybe taking a bit more of a hawkish tone um, on rates. Um, but they did not. It was dead pat, dead straight, um, uh, neutral uh, statement. Uh, in line with the long-term view, I think, from, um, um, I think, most observers yep. that rates are on hold for a long time in Australia. Then we had what happened this week. Now, there was a small little excerpt in the minutes, about two-thirds of the way down. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it uh, part, uh, uh, very quickly. 
uh, members discussed the bank's work estimating the neutral real interest rate for Australia. The various estimates suggested that the rate had been broadly stable until around 2007, but had since fallen by around 150 basis points to around 1%. This equated to a neutral nominal cash rate of around 3.5%, given that medium-term inflation expectations well anchored around 2.5%. Now, Dave, uh, what was the reaction to that? Well, what was the reaction? The Australian dollar uh, spiked to above uh, 79 cents and, uh, and came within a whisker of uh, 80 cents earlier today. Uh, bonds got uh, got smacked. Uh, OIS pricing, so interest rate pricing for the RBA, uh, when it started pricing and fully priced by the end of uh, by the middle of next year uh, for a 25 basis point hike. So uh, it had a very very instant and lasting impact. Um, so, um, Martin, um, th- this is the the issue here. Obviously, um, is that um, so much market pricing uh, moved this week. What did you see? Well, um, I guess we were surprised by the market reaction to it. Um, right. Firstly, yes, you were right. The statement contained nothing new. The RBA has been pretty positive on the world growth for quite some time, so there should be nothing more out of that. Um, I would suggest that positioning in markets played a part on the RBA, uh, on, on the way that the market reacted. But um, to suggest that the neutral rate was that high and that perhaps long-term inflation uh, expectations anchored at 25 well, we're barely scratching two. So it seems that anchoring at 25 is, is is a little bit um, premature. Uh, I would say that in the context that for the US, where they've had full employment now for quite some time and certainly talked about very heavily this year by Fed members, and for the last four months, their inflation numbers have actually fallen. Nowhere in the developed world where you've actually seen unemployment fall to the levels we're at, this tightness in the labour market, and remember, we've got a lot of slack. Um, have you seen wage growth and inflation really pick up? So it's this Aldiization or Amazonization, if you want to call it that, of inflation around the world. And to suggest that we're anchored that high, uh, it seems to me a little bit high. Nonetheless, markets reacted very violently to it. We haven't really peeled back just yet. Um, mm. In fact, from David's pricing that he mentioned, obviously, at the time of the statement or time of the minutes, we've gone on a little further. That pricing for 25 basis points is now in for the May meeting. So we've gone from around August, July, you know, a couple of months ahead to May for the first 25 hike. Now, fully priced in. Fully 25, priced in. Yeah. Now, there are a number of economists in the market who are saying maybe November, May, later this year. Um, you can have some sympathy for parts of their views, but at the same time, the RBA has given us no signal beforehand, not that they necessarily will, that um, that they have that, that rates will be going up anytime soon. Mm. And certainly if you look at inflation, which is one of their key measures, it's not there. In the jobs number today, we did have a drop in the underemployment rate, which we get every quarter, and that was very positive. I think that's a, that's a great development. But it's still 8.4%, so yeah. it's still very high. We have a lot of slack. Yeah, still, still a long way from... Still a long way from the idea that, okay, it's the time to be hiking rates. Now, another thing to add to that is, as David pointed out, the currency rallied pretty strongly. The RBA has pointed out for some time that any rise in the currency is going to be a bit of a headwind for the economy. So um, I think the phrase that they've consistently used, that an appreciating exchange rate would complicate yeah. this. So it's going now, a little bit more complicated. If it's, if it's matching the terms of trade, it's less of a problem, but it's not really matching it. What we see in our analysis, particularly my colleague Dan Bean on, in the foreign exchange area, says is it's really you've just got a surfeit of liquidity in the markets. And that is 
very helpful for markets like Australia, whether it's the bond market or even the equity market, but certainly the currency market. People go for that carry. Mm-hmm. And right now, uh, there's no carry in the dollar because uh, it's all priced in and there's no expectations of hikes. Whereas for the Aussie, you've got expectations of hikes. You're getting, you're getting a nice differential still. Absolutely. Um, Dave, um, your thoughts now on um, how does the RBA uh, handle this? Well, uh, Guy Bell is speaking uh, Friday. So uh, for all of you uh, who are listening uh, tonight and uh, on Friday morning, make sure you go and pencil that in. I think it's uh, just after lunch, around lunchtime tomorrow. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see whether he will go and take uh, a jawbone approach to the Australian dollar and uh, and maybe correct uh, some of the exuberance that's been uh, priced into uh, to financial markets. I think that's a big risk tomorrow. And obviously, uh, that event in particular is going to be massive. Then next week, of course, we get uh, CPI on uh, on Wednesday. Yeah which is going to be another major event. And then coming uh, only just an hour or so after that CPI release, we hear from uh, Governor, uh, yeah, Governor Lowe, sorry. Yeah, and, the uh, Foundation. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, um, so we've got a huge amount of events <laughs> here, risk events and related to it. And also, like, we get a, a lowish uh, inflation reading. And look, let's be honest, with unemployment still sitting at 5.6%, underemployment high, uh, there's not likely to be any significant uh, uptick there. There's every possibility we may see the RBA uh, going and take some steps to go and maybe uh, just curb the enthusiasm of those who are saying uh, rate hikes by May next year and, and the like. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, and just walking through um, again, Martin, to, to, to the inflation picture, um, still a lot of slack remaining in the labour market. And even if it did tighten, uh, we've got this global issue where it looks like that in advanced economies, in particular, even though you get um, you can get the unemployment rate rate, Japan the unemployment rate is yeah. below three percent. Right. No inflation. Um, the United States, no inflation, unemployment low fours. Um, so. Um, you, we appear to have this this structural issue. You've also got you know oil prices looking reasonably steady. Uh, so um, we may get a one-off hit in the coming quarter on energy prices, yes, um, because a lot of the providers have jacked up their rates. But obviously, um, the RBA will, would look through that if it, if it looked like it was attributable only to those one-off price rises. Um, so you've got the the um, overall energy prices um, looking. Steady, uh, uh, the um, slack in the labour market, no wages pressure, uh, and this issue with global competition, which you touched on, the Aldiization or Amazonization. And Amazon, we reported this week, has got so looks like it's got some facility in Melbourne, and it's about to start rolling out. It's uh, so there's no way it, it's 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 retail product in 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 Melbourne at least. So there's no way that retailers are going to start um, going to be ha- have any pricing power. They in just this don't. They yeah. really do not. Yeah. So um, so overall, um, kind of, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Next week's um, CPI numbers, and then um, and, and then the picture between now and the end of the year. Hey. Yeah. Look, the um, the comments uh, that David made about the Annika or the Governor Lowe's speech at the Annika lunch. It's typically a um, a speech that the RBA has used in the past mm-hmm. to set the agenda. Now, I guess if you wanted to be conspiracy theorists around it and say, well, perhaps this is Governor Lowe's opportunity to say, listen, we think things are good enough. Um, we're not hiking now, but that's probably more likely to be up than down as the next move. Um, that's the sort of thing that would justify pricing of currencies and rates where they are. Um, I just can't see him doing that just yet. Mm. The complication to the to the economy's recovery through a higher currency, that would be 
an issue. Yeah. An interesting, sorry, Dan. And tightening of financial conditions yeah, through higher rates markets. We've already got uh, no, credit growth is, uh, is slowing. We've got uh, rates that are going up uh, out of out of cycle mortgage increases. The Aussie dollars, you know, knocking the door of eighty cents. Um, you don't want to go and throw like you know official interest rate increases there. You're going to tighten conditions further, particularly with the uh, the outlook for inflation at the moment. No, we've had we've had out of cycle hikes. And when the RBA used its scalpel with these APRA measures earlier this year, or APRA used them with the RBA's uh, endorsement, um, what they're trying to do with that is target very specific things. That is interest-only mortgages for investors. If you do a system-wide hike, you're tightening it for everyone. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're also putting deposit rates up, but you're you're tightening financial conditions for everyone with a loan. I'm not sure that that's what they want to see in low credit conditions and a consumer that's already stretched. What they don't want to see is those who are taking too much debt on behave in a way that is reminiscent of Dublin in uh, 2006. Yes, yes. Uh, as well, you may well know. Well, that's right. Well, I got out just before. But I, I, I think I may have told this story once before on the podcast, but I, I left there in 2002 and it was crazy. It was crazy town. You, there were there was so many jobs uh you so many people had job you know a, a, a list of job offers and that they were that they were fielding at any one time so you could walk into your boss's office and say hey maybe a couple of grand can we to you know a couple of thousand euro you know and um they were like oh okay you know so you had this just insane like it was nuts and um i had friends who were in their early 20s uh and they had bought their first home and about seven or eight months later, they bought a second. Um, as <laughs> Doubling down. Yeah. Well, you don't see that in Sydney these days. <laughs> no, <or> not <laughs> at all. <laughs> so Too much avocado toast consumption. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, look, um, and, you know, and one of the other things there was the role of the banks. Um, not, to, not to mum and dad investors, but to very large-scale developers – uh, at insanely low uh, rates, where there was this huge you know, industrial uh, prop, uh, industrial scale property speculation going on, buying vast tracts of land, building hundreds of houses on them, uh, and then selling them off at very significant profits when the boom was on. Yeah. But then, uh, once of course you got this, you know, collapse in in rentals, um, you had some net outward migration. Um, and a whole bunch of people lost their jobs, and that's why you have these ghost estates now, which you know kind of sit there um, empty, you know, ten years later from from when they were being, being built, and they're just only half constructed. You know, um, so it's, it's a wasteland, and the scars are going to be there for years. And yeah. of course, the um, hangover hurts for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, people are going to be paying uh, that off uh, for for generations. So um, uh, for a couple of generations, I reckon. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, Martin, before we talk about um, just some of the nitty-gritty of the bond market, can I just ask you about – we'd like to ask this of everybody who comes on the show, but your outlook on the property market, touched on it a little bit there. Um, how do you see um, uh, this uh, playing out from here? Okay, so um – our property economist, in, who's based in Melbourne office, uh, his view—well, I guess which is we share as the as the team view—is that we're going to see a moderation in house prices. Um, the tighter conditions from the regulators uh, and probably the feed through of higher rates at the moment, um, a slowing of the migration numbers, uh, and particularly probably the money coming in from China, is going to be a bit of a headwind. Um, that frenzy that we saw until maybe 
March, April this year, appears to have gone away. Um, Sometimes I think of it in terms of uh, bond markets or or equity markets. People aren't paying the offer to get – they're not paying the the sell price to get the house now. They're sitting on the bid and getting done there. So it seems some of that steam has been taken out, and we think that more than likely you're just going to moderate on those prices, still get a a positive growth, but just not the same numbers that we saw, which were a little bit insane – for most of 15 and 16 at that sort of 15 to 20% growth. Um, I personally do not see a, a situation where we fall in price. Um, so certainly for, no sign certainly of it, mate. For yeah. Sydney or yeah. Melbourne mm. uh, and, and specifically around the housing market. Mm. Um, but I think that there are, you know, there's certainly patches in Brisbane and Melbourne where the oversupply of apartments is a concern mm. and you're already seeing some of those prices actually fall. When it comes to actually the land itself in housing, the inner rings of the 5 to 10 kilometres from a CBD, extremely hard to see that falling away significantly. So still growth, but just growth, Jim, but not as we know it. Yes, yeah. that's right. But the auction, auction clearance rates at the moment still sitting around a, a level where you'd expect to go and see nationally. And obviously that's uh, – a lot of it's to do with uh, what's going on in the city and Melbourne price, uh, markets, but you still see annual price growth at around about 10% per annum, around about 70% auction clearance rates. Yeah. Um, the, the big key thing as well, when you talk about uh, you know, the, the big housing bust in Australia, the one thing you've got to put into the equation as well is population increase. Yes. The two cities that are having the, the biggest inflows, whether percentage terms or in actual numbers, are Sydney and Melbourne. And surprise, surprise, there they are. The two markets have gone and, uh, and, and been rocketing over the, uh, the last few years. I think I may have read something that you guys put out about um – Population into Victoria is the the largest inflow since the gold rush days. Yeah, um, yeah. which right. you can see why both New South Wales and Victoria are booming. But also, there's governance issues. Both state governments have been doing a great job. They've been selling assets, recycling them, turning it into, into infrastructure as a taxpayer. Uh, and as a citizen, I don't mind it because I'm looking at the infrastructure that's being built for myself, for my children, for people and I say that's actually worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the, the only issue is that it's it's going to take at this stage sort of five to ten years uh, for a lot of it, particularly in Sydney, um, uh, to come on stream. And Dave, you wrote um, a pretty pretty detailed piece um, looking at some of the, um, the questions around population growth uh, um, last uh, Friday. Um, you know, just around that, you know, the questions about like whether the current rates, uh, which have been extraordinary yeah. uh, of, of population growth, uh, mainly driven by uh, migration, um, are, you know, whether they're sustainable and, and the right choice at the moment. Yeah, it just uh, comes down to the, uh, the the well-being of people who are already living in the country. It's uh, it's no uh, no no stab at uh, no the levels of, uh, of, of migrants in general, but just the level of migration we're seeing at the moment. Um, and the question that I think has to be asked is that uh, so many of these people who are arriving are, are, are coming into Sydney and Melbourne, and obviously that's going placing pressure on, uh, on housing, whether it's to go and buy, whether it's to go and rent. And we're seeing house prices in Sydney and Melbourne are going high. Uh, we know that uh, you know, rents in Melbourne and Sydney are also starting to go and pick up. It comes down to a policy decision. It's like, are we having the right level of, uh, of immigration at the moment mm-hmm. to allow the economy to function normally and go and benefit people who are already living here? Um, or is there perhaps a, a need to go and discuss, uh, you know, incentives to go and say, okay, well, we're happy to go and have the current uh, levels of immigration coming in, but we need to have people settling in cities outside of Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, if that was a, a policy that was put forward, if there was some way they could go and uh, implement that, I think a lot of other parts of the country would welcome it as well. And there are a range of ways to do that, uh, you know, more decentralisation of, um, say, large government departments, etc., from Canberra. Um, 
you know, um, and, and also, uh, you know, there's um, things that state governments can do in terms of job creation, um, building hubs for um, uh, Adelaide now is trying to um, attract more high skilled tech uh industry talent um, and they're also going to have some pretty high tech industry through government funded uh, projects over the over the coming years uh, with the, the submarine uh, work yep. going on there going on down there etc so there are ways to do it to sort of try and herd the um, the migration intake into different parts of the of course country. people want um, if they're going to move from a city uh, they're going to want the big city benefits so what you need is the infrastructure to support it now somewhere like Toowoomba has done that. Mm. Um, I think in New South Wales, the state government, the nationals are have, have sort of advocated that around a third of the asset sale price or asset sale receipts have to go towards um, regional New South Wales. Now that might mean that you move government departments to Orange or to Armadale, etc. Now, lovely places to live, but you need to have those high-speed rail links or aeroplane links that are not either, or sorry, both not expensive and it has the infrastructure to support it. So. Um, they're great ideas, and there will be plenty of people who want that sea change to move to regional areas. New South, uh, Wollongong and Newcastle to the south and north, respectively, of Sydney, they are areas that could benefit enormously with a bit more infrastructure on rail and road, uh, and they're great places to live. Yeah, they are. Um, uh, Wollongong in particular, and it's sort of hinterland, um, beautiful yeah. area down there. Um, you know, if you you know, um, just get down, you're not you're only a hop from the from the south coast. Pretty good lifestyle if you had a sort of forty five. As a former community. Wollongong boy, I can say that. Yeah, yeah right. North, North Wollongong. I spent uh, a number of days on the other beach there, at, uh, and a couple of beers afterwards as well. So it's a great spot. Yeah, yeah, and um, and only a hop across as well to the to the Southern Highlands, uh, yeah. which is um, you know one of the most beautiful parts of the country, uh, in my humble opinion. Um, okay, let's uh, quickly look at um, at the bond stuff. Look, you heard me. Um, <coughs> Uh, jumping onto my high horse very briefly <laughs> at the start. Um, basically, I, in Australia, look, we talk an awful lot about equities. 6 p.m. news every night always talks about, you know, uh, the ASX today was up 0.05% or whatever it was. Um, but uh, I think what people don't see is, uh, and we're hopefully going to try and try and uh, shed some light on it um, in our chat over the next 10 minutes, is the vast size um, and sophistication of the fixed income market, um, A, globally, but also in Australia. Um, I pulled out a few quick stats on this um, just for comparison. Now, this is bearing in mind that we had a really some really big moves in – uh, turnover in, in the fixed income market uh, last year, towards the end of last year. But um, uh, this is actually just in the financial year 2015, 2016. And the turnover for uh, the physical market is in government and non-government debt securities uh, and a few other bits and pieces was $15.6 trillion um, over, which is about 10 times, give or take, the size of the um, country's GDP. Yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> so maybe nine, I think. Um, so it's a lot. I mean, government bonds on their own, uh, 9.2 trillion. Um, and then the rest of it, like bank debt, uh, just 1.1 trillion. Um, but then a total non-government debt um, being 1.7 trillion. Um, so... Uh, this is a really, really big market, and also it's um, it's highly calculated because it's looking over very, very long um, periods of time. Uh, Martin, 
why don't you just talk us through it? Um, what, 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 what's involved in it? What's the shape of it? Um, and, and, and why um, do you think it's so important? Well, well like you, I, uh, my bugbear is also watching the evening news uh, and seeing what the stocks, stock market has done. I guess, look, we, we care about the stock market because it's a visual thing. We all own super. But most of us although also have a mortgage or deposits. And so therefore, you need to know what the interest rates are doing because they drive the stocks, they drive the currency. Uh, I can't see that uh, Alan Kohler on the news, on ABC News, is going to tell us what the three-year swap rate did on the day. <laughs> but it's probably important to know if you're about to take out a mortgage because if it moved 20 basis points higher, that's 20 basis points more you're paying on your mortgage when you go to set it. Um, not that it moves – not that your mortgage moves on a daily basis unless you're on a floating rate and there is a reset every quarter. But – um, so to give some context, so you've got $500 billion of government debt. Uh, at the turn of the financial crisis, Australia had about $55 billion in debt. So we are 10 times bigger since then. Um, the state governments have around $250 billion between them, with um, Queensland the, the largest contributor to that. The corporate debt market, so that it was banks, um, Australian companies who issue debt and uh, foreign companies issuing Australian dollars, another $500 billion. So you've got one and a quarter trillion dollars worth of debt, which is far in excess in stock terms than the size of the ASX, or it's in excess of that. Mm. And in terms certainly of turnover, it is bigger. Um, what's easier to do? Well, it's easier for a person to understand a stock. I like Woolworths, I'm going to buy it. I like ANZ stock, I'm going to buy it. I don't like it, I'm going to sell it if I have it in my portfolio. You don't necessarily go out and say, well, I really like the uh, five and three quarters of November 22 bond. <laughs> you don't really think that much unless you're an asset manager. Um, you don't look at it at its value against other bonds on the curve. And also, if you did go and buy it, unfortunately in Australia, the tax system is skewed towards the equity market and not the bond market. Through frank dividends. Through frank yeah. dividends. And if you you take the coupon on the bond or you're paying your, the full whack of income tax on that. So it's not really uh, the most um, exciting market for people to be in. Whereas if you go, and I'm sure your stats show it, to Europe, the US, the UK, it's the other way around. The risk assets, the growth assets that we are exposed to in Australia, they're flipped the other way towards safe, fixed income. And as I said to you guys before I walked in, there's the hint, fixed and income. They give you both. Um, and certainly in, if you go back not that long ago in people's memories to, to the financial crisis, they still paid you a coupon even though the equity market was losing money and so you weren't getting the dividends. Yeah. So um, unless, of course, you owned debt that defaulted, which was uh, not, not so good. But bonds – Bonds are, are in, a, in a lot of ways, they're sort of the professional market yeah. or the rates markets are the professional market. They are held by asset managers. They're held by central banks. They're held by banks themselves to hold as what's called liquid assets against their home loan books uh, or their, their, their lending books. They're held by um, uh, high net worth individuals who want to um, diversify what assets they hold. And... They're a big market, as you say, yeah. and they're traded around the clock. Um, we don't wait till 10 o'clock in the morning to trade. We are open 24 hours pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and the diversity of the uh, term curve, so you can buy a one-year, a two-year, out to, in some cases, in Ireland's case, you could buy a 100-year bond uh, recently. And most bond markets go out to about 30 years. But you can choose what tenor 
on the curve you want, what credit quality you want. If you don't want governments because they're too low yielding, well, you buy a corporate bond. Mm. Um, and they give you that equity-like return, but with a coupon. Maybe you can explain as well, um, for people who aren't familiar, the concept of the curve and how, how, it, um, how what drives it, um, but also what the shape of it can tell you uh, about what the market is thinking. Sure. So the yield curve is a concept that really says it starts at day zero, and that is the official cash rate. So a bond from a government will yield pretty close to that cash rate if its maturity is, say, less than three months. As you go out in term, as you go to one year, five years, 10 years, 30 years, as an investor, and remember, a bond is a loan. If you buy a bond from the Australian government, you are lending the Australian government money. If you buy it from us as a bank, you're lending ANZ money or a corporate anyone. So the longer you lend that money for, the more chance that the person you lend it to comes into some sort of danger over time. So you want to be compensated for that. It gives you higher yield for longer, the longer you hold that bond. So you have an upward sloping yield curve, and that's a normal curve. Then you have um, a downward sloping yield curve, and a downward sloping yield curve is sort of at the point where interest rates can be, they're generally a little bit higher, and the outlook is, oh dear, we're going into recession, so the bond in five or 10 years' time is going to yield less because it has the concept of duration. Mm. And so its sensitivity to a move in interest rates is higher. And therefore, you know if rates are going to be cut, you want to have the bond that's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. So that might be a five or a 10-year bond. But a downward sloping curve is not something you want to see. Not a good thing. That no. suggests a recession. Yeah. So, and we, we, we've um, been talking a lot. So um, bond yields, particularly government bonds, uh, there has been this uptick. So there's been a sell-off in, in the bond market. Um, uh, the ones I watch typically um, are U.S. ten-year treasuries yep. um, and Australian ten-year um, uh, uh, government bonds. Um, so Australian ten years back to about two point seven five percent at the moment, um, but and then um, U.S. treasuries something like two point three five or something. Exactly. Um, and uh, the I suppose the issue is. So many people have been um, holding these bonds for a long time, and as the yield goes up, the value is starting to decrease. That's right. Now, is there a point we could get to? We've seen, I've seen some U.S. Um, strategists and fund managers talking about the sort of threshold levels, particularly in U.S. Treasuries, where you might see an even more dramatic move upward uh, in yields. Can you talk us through what that would have Yeah, been? so typically you have these uh, points where yields break either a technical level, a lot of people in the market look at technicals, or they break a fundamental level. That might be a breakaway from what the inflation forecasts are going to be. Uh, these can be driven by supply, they, as in a lot of it or none of it. Uh, they can be driven by demand. Someone in the instance of the, the US yields, the federal bank, or the, sorry, the central bank there, the Federal Reserve, owns a big chunk of them. If what they've been doing is ostensibly artificially holding down yields in the US by Buying purchasing bonds. bonds. Yeah. Now, later on this year, as everyone's aware, uh, they are looking to exit that trade. Now, it doesn't mean selling the bonds, it just means not buying them anymore. Yeah. At that time, we're actually going into sort of some, some deficits in the US. So the US Treasury has to find a new buyer to their bonds. And it was pretty easy. One arm of government bought them from another at an arm's length transaction because they have to. But 
if the Fed is not buying from the US Treasury anymore, someone's got to buy them. Now, if you are an investor, whether you're a large fund manager or a central bank, you'll say, well, if that's going to happen and I'm still happy to buy bonds, I might just wait a little bit to buy them. And so that says to you, well, where is the value? And you've got to find, you've got to do your own analysis to say, what's the point where that 10-year yield gives me the value because of the shape of the yield curve, the carry of holding that bond versus my funding rate, uh, what my inflation and growth expectations are going to be over the period of time that I'm holding that bond, and what potential capital loss. Because the thing about bond people, where we're different, we're nasty, we're pessimists. <laughs> we look at the downside first. How much can I lose? Because the best you can get back as a bondholder is the $100 you put in to buy the bond and a fairly measly these days interest rate. Mm. As an equity person, it's all about the upside. Everything's blue sky and sunny, <laughs> warm, cocktail in hand, and you're very, very happy. But a bond person is generally a miserable person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess for fund managers looking at that, they've got to say, what's my downside first? And in this environment where we're not getting inflation, every time yields have gone up, they've only been able to go up to a certain point. Mm. And so the bond bears, yeah. and I was one of them earlier this year, have been trapped. It's, it's been harder to justify that sell-off mm. because the data's rolled over, inflation yeah. in the US or growth. So if everything goes well, then the sell-off can continue. And the curve will sell off with that. So there's an interesting uh, dynamic here as well, which is the the difference between the Australian ten year uh, bond and and the yield on the on the ten year U.S. Treasury, for yes. example. Or and and you can move that along the curve, etc. Um, and that has some uh, implications as well to, uh, for Australia, doesn't it? Yeah. So Australia has historically been a country that needs to borrow its money offshore. We've got a lot of it through our superannuation, where. I think third or fourth largest super pool in the world, thanks to Paul Keating's reforms 30 years ago. More than $2 trillion uh, and, now. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that is very, very helpful for us. However, as we discussed, we're in growth assets in Australia, not in fixed income assets. So we fund offshore. Banks fund offshore. Corporates fund offshore. The Australian government, however, only ever issues in Australian dollars. Uh, the last time it issued in US dollars was... I think back in 1987 when Paul Keating was treasurer and it was a 30-year bond at the time. But we don't issue offshore as the government. We can find enough liquidity domestically. So <clears throat> what drives our bond market is clearly, as you said, what happens in US yields because we follow those, Japanese yields, German yields, but also the relative attraction of those two bonds. For the greatest part of the last decade, Australia traded at a spread of around – 150, 200 over the US. Mm. We crunched in this year. We got to about, I think, 25 mm. over the US, 21 maybe intraday. We're now at about 45. But it's not much of a pickup. Mm. So you're only getting half a percent pickup over the US for 10 years. now. And, and the Fed is looking at raising and rates. And the Fed is looking at raising rates, yeah. So in that environment, do you say, well, as a bondholder from, let's call it Europe or the US – do I buy Australian bonds which only give me 50 basis points pick up over the US? And, gee, if the Fed's hiking, then the US dollar should go up over time, over the, you know, not short term necessarily, but over time. And the Aussie dollar should go down. So what's my risk? Well, my risk is the currency. And if the Aussie dollar fell in that period, you'd, you'd lose a lot. Now, as it happens, the Aussie dollar, as David said, has, has done pretty well in the last few weeks. So you've actually been paid to have that trade on. 
but it's been pretty skinny. Mm. And we need, as a capital importer, to attract buyers. As that spread has narrowed to the US from 200 over to, say, 50 over or 30 over, uh, the holdings of Australian debt offshore have fallen from around 75% to around 55%. Mm. As that pile of debt has also grown from around 100 billion to 500 billion. So it's been quite remarkable. And the currency has broadly, until recently, fallen because of that spread differential. Mm. So we have to watch that. And it's something that bond investors domestically and certainly offshore, whether particularly, say, in the central bank community who are large holders of Australian dollar debt, they look at that pretty closely. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, if you play the tape forward, um, one of the other issues that has potential to emerge there is that spread between, say, U.S., and, and Australian um, government bonds continues to close is that it will compound the impact of the demand for Australian dollars yes. and potentially um, you know, feed this, uh, this thing of the downward pressure on, on the Aussie. Dave, you were um, a rates trader in a previous life. Um, you know, do, um, what, what, what are your favorite uh, sort of dynamics to look at uh, in fixed income at the moment? Oh, look, I, I traded more in the currency market. So I used to go and concentrate around about the two-year uh, swap area. Uh, that was uh, where I used to go and uh, look at uh, rate differentials quite a lot. Um, the one key thing I was, uh, was going to ask Marty about was um, you touched on the, uh, the Fed with the balance sheet uh, and a starting to, uh, to go and reduce the size of their balance sheet. And the ECB as well is uh, is likely to go and signal that uh, they're no longer going to expand their asset purchases and uh, and potentially laying the foundation for a runoff. Um, just your impression as to what you think that may go and do to markets. Do you think it's going to be an event that could be disruptive or do you think it's going to be fairly uh, plain sailing? Well, I know that the Fed members have all spoken about this and have been flagging it very heavily this year in every opportunity that they can, and they want it to be a non-disruptive thing. Uh, I think to their best of their ability, they'll try to make it that way. The problem with that is in every other episode we've had a uh, such an event, we get disruption. Um, w- the, the thing that we would look at most is if the amount of liquidity in the system derived from central banks is reduced, then markets like Australia, markets like... New Zealand, uh, Asian markets, um, LATAM or EM currencies and and bond markets, they are beneficiaries of liquidity right now. When the tide goes out, they get shown up. Mm. And so it's manifested in the currency going lower pretty quickly. And typically it's the currency that moves quicker. Um, But sometimes it manifests itself in some of these countries having to put their rates up to attract that capital that they need. And that actually slows their economy down and makes them less attractive. And it sort of is a vicious circle uh, as a result. So um, liquidity is probably the biggest thing you've got to look at. And if the ECB, the BOJ, uh, Bank of England and the Fed are all doing something over the next year, year and a half, as that liquidity goes, we're going to get a very big change in the buoyancy of asset markets, particularly risk markets that have enjoyed a lot of cash being thrown at them, whether it is in Sydney house prices from international investors, uh, Canadian equities, Latin American fixed income, whatever it may be, all of those things will look a little different um, when the rose-coloured glasses are uh, 
are taken off. Yeah, I'm generally excited about uh, what lies ahead in the next <laughs> year or so. I, I've got this feeling that uh, volatility is going to go not uh, not back to anything extreme levels like around the GFC or the European uh, financial crisis or whatnot. But uh, I definitely see that you, know, you see that um, emerging market uh, equities and bonds uh, in Asia being hoovered by uh, by foreign yeah. investors, um, stocks, all-time highs. All of this has been driven so much by liquidity, the Aussie dollar. Um, if you start seeing uh, you know, those uh, those bond yields uh, in those big jurisdictions like the US, like Japan, uh, like Europe, uh, start to go and spike a little bit, then ooh, it's going to get real exciting. Uh, I, saw, I saw one really interesting stat, which is uh, um, equity market volatility uh, in the United States. Again, the VIX, which is the, the volatility index, and um, for U.S. stocks, closed below 10 for, for yeah. 15 in a row. Um, and uh, the last time that happened uh, was the five days between, I think, December 22nd and the December 28th, um, which was Christmas, mm. um, uh, back in the 1990s. So we are looking at incredibly low levels of volatility, uh, which is encouraging um, flow of, you know, well, people looking around and, for things to buy. That where and they the mispricing get of assets. Um, yeah. And I won't say this is a mispricing of assets because uh, it's not necessarily what I want to per, per, uh, say. But say Fortescue. Fortescue was a company uh, that was struggling a couple of years ago with with the uh, falling commodity prices, or iron ore prices, and it had a lot of debt outstanding. It was able to refinance that debt earlier this year at pretty much close to investment grade. To be fair to them, they've done an extremely good job on lowering their cost base, so they deserve some of that. But they are sort of symbolic of their credit spreads being so narrow, are symbolic of the fact that investors have almost, whether they're equity or debt, I think it doesn't really matter here, they have poured money into something just to get yield. As, as someone said to me uh, recently, I have more money looking uh, to, to put into trades than I have good trade ideas. So they're just putting it into anything that yep. they can do yep. to get yield. And that has given us a mispricing of assets across every asset class. So I agree with David. I don't think the volatility spike will be huge. It'll come, but it'll just be at a change in sentiment where the liquidity says, hey, uh, the value of these assets is not what you really think they were. And they're going to change pretty dramatically, particularly for the high beta, more volatile sort of names. And they are uh, low liquidity stocks or – trades that you can't get out of because everyone can get you into the trade. It's the getting out part that is actually really, really tough. That's right. Um, And just look to underline this uh, point about, you know, as we go into this period um, to talk about, you know, allocations in Australia, I did pull this number um, from, um, I think it was uh, Franklin Templeton. Franklin Templeton had this this data. It says 2014 data, but it gives you a good, good idea of how Australia compares in terms of asset allocation to growth. Um, products versus um, versus fixed income. Um, in this table, I'm looking at Australia, Canada, Ch- um, Chile, China, Denmark, etc. The list goes on. Australia is by far the lowest um, in terms of proportion of allocations in fixed income. And remember now, this is across the universe of um, pension funds, um, so that you will actually have people who are earlier in their life and are able to have a bit more risk that will have much, much less yeah. than 25%. It's as you get um, towards the end of your career and you need that money to not go away mm. if something goes wrong. Um, that Fixed you'll have, and income. Yes, you'll have. I, I've, I've lost count of the number of people <laughs> I've spoken to who are approaching a retirement. And uh, no, they, they sit there and they watch the daily gyrations in the stock market. Good and they, and, and, oh, no, one, you, can, you can just tell like, you know, one, when the stock market's up 1%, they're like, 
you know, absolutely joyous that starts <laughs> down 1%, they're down in the dumps. I just say, look, just go and diversify your portfolio. Go and get out of those stocks and get into something that's safe and relax and enjoy your retirement. Don't have to worry about you know that next turn I'm missing out on that last 5% uh, that you could earn. Uh, if it means you're going to lose 50% or something yeah. you know, in, the, in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just just quickly, I mean, just comparing us to other countries, um, South Korea fixed income allocations and pension funds ninety five percent, Netherlands seventy percent, um, the United States forty, um, but Britain forty five, Switzerland forty five, um, you know, China eighty percent. So Australia is like this is these are big gaps when we're sitting there at twenty five percent versus sixty eight percent. This is two thousand fourteen numbers now. I go to Japan a lot, as you've probably read in some of my notes. But um, one of the things that you're struck with there is whenever you go in to see, say, fund managers or banks in the lobby of these buildings are in Japanese uh, pamphlets for um, fixed income products. You very rarely see an equity fund being opened. They have so many. Uh, they have life insurance policies in Japan. This is a very interesting thing specifically around Australia, they have life insurance policies in, in Japan that are denominated in Australian dollars and backed by, backed by Australian dollar fixed income. So Mrs. Watanabe in Japan buys Australian dollars, has a full exposure, but she will not buy equities. They don't take that sort of risk. They, yeah. they have some allocation, but they are so glued to the idea of fixed income because they, they just know what they're going to get with it. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a really different behavioural pattern to Australia. We, we, we are long houses and we are long stocks. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, that, you know, the combine those two things and you've got to, you know, if there's a downturn in both, uh, you know, there's a lot of wealth gets... Um, Financial stability becomes down. an issue. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. On that cheery note, um, look, we, we have had a discussion on bonds, so uh, I think it's appropriate. Um, our guest on the show this week has been Martin Wetton, rate strategist at ANZ. Martin, thank you so much for coming on the been show. Been great. Thank been you. Been really fascinating chat. Um, we're on the web at businessinsider.com.au. You can find us all on Twitter individually, Martin Wetton, David Scott, and myself, Paul Colgan. The show's on iTunes, where you can rate us and leave us a review. Uh, thanks very much for listening. The show's been produced by Rick Salter, and we'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.